0: The worst thing you can do is sit on the sidelines and just, um, you know, wait for the perfect opportunity. Because frankly, that perfect opportunity will never come.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Get Your Fill: Financial Independence and Long Life. We explore ways to achieve those two goals. And when we find a person who can really help us with the financial independence piece of all this, then we are very excited to have them. And that is why I'm really psyched that Jacob Vanderslice is with us today. He is a principal at Van West Partners, which is a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the U.S., so we want to hear about that because self-storage is something that I think is real interesting and stuff. There's lots more information about Jacob and his whole bio will be on the, in the show notes, along with how you're going to reach him when you find out how cool this is and how you want to be a part of it. But Jacob, so why self-storage? Cause it seems to me, it's not that romantic. How did you get started in it?
0: Well, Christine, first of all, thanks for having us on today. Great to meet you. Um, I could not agree more. That's not that, <laughs> that, that romantic. I, uh, I certainly didn't go to high school dreaming of being a, a self-storage investor, owner-operator, um, years down the road. But uh, that's how it goes. I thought I'd be a fighter pilot, and now I just uh, sit wow. at a desk and talk about deals all day. So, but luckily yeah. you
1: have a, a propeller in your. I, I do. I, I so
0: <laughs> I did the next best thing. I got my pilot's license when I went high, when I was in high school, and I fly airplanes for fun. But uh, I'm not taking off the uh, you know the air force base in an F16, unfortunately. But yeah. another life, another okay. life.
1: Yeah, next time maybe.
0: <laughs> so, why self storage? We um we've done a lot of asset classes over the years. We've done single family residential, townhome development, uh, retail, uh, office, land deals, and we fell into self storage in about 2015. And we had studied it for a while, and we liked the fact that it's historically recession resistant and kind of downturn protected. Uh, we like the scalability of the operational platform. We like the durable recurring revenue streams, and Historically, when there's a, an economic disruption event, um, self-storage performs pretty well. Um, so we like the downside protection. Um, we like the reasonable and quantifiable upside. Um, and more specifically, we like the uh, granularity of the revenue streams. So we're relying on thousands of people to pay us you know, $30 to $300 a month. Right. And they're all month-to-month leases, so we can respond real-time to supply and demand changes. We can raise rents on deals that are performing really well, that are really full. We can lower rents on unit types or deals that maybe aren't performing as well. So we think it's a pretty good um, it's a pretty good asset class in terms of a good risk-adjusted return. So we like it. We'll see how it goes.
1: And I wonder, I, I'm just, as you were talking about that, I was thinking that as the economy, when the economy isn't as strong, I wonder if people are even more inclined to hang on to stuff that they might trash if they thought they were going to have an unlimited income stream.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it kind of depends. I mean, when I mentioned disruption event earlier, um, really um, friction in the economy is what drives self-storage demand. And by friction, I mean kind of people moving up and down the economic ladder, um, getting married, getting divorced, getting a new job, losing a job, relocating to a new place, downsizing from a house to an apartment. Um, really, life changes, are what drive demand in storage? And when there's a when there's a downturn, there's a lot of life changes, for better, or for worse. Um, and the pandemic, a lot of people needed to clear out their third bedroom for the home office. Storage demand went up for uh, that reason, and many others. Right. Um, so it's defensible. We'll, we'll see how we'll see how everything performs as we kind of go into this downturn, which I think we're already in. Yeah. Um, probably pretty safe to say that we're there. Yeah. Um, but it's a good asset class.
1: Now, are you building units? or Are you buying ones that are existing?
0: So we're doing both. We have uh, we have two vehicles in our self storage investment platform. Um, a few months ago, we launched our third storage fund, and Fund Three is only buying existing facilities that are already there that we can add value to with capital improvements, but mainly management efficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside of Fund Three, we're doing ground up development projects within the context of single asset syndications. Um, and for those of us listening, who may not be clear on, on both. A syndication is typically one deal. A sponsor will go out and raise money for make an LLC. And a fund is kind of similar, but a fund is a collection of assets. Mm-hmm. So we thought development was a little bit too different of a strategy to uh, mix into a fund vehicle. So we're doing those outside of our fund. So we, uh, we have a deal under development right now that we closed a few months ago on the uh, front range north of Denver. We've got uh, three other deals in the pipeline that are closing in Q1. So we build and we also buy existing as well.
1: Interesting. When you're scouting a location, are there things like similarities that you know are going to, you know, in the, in the demographic or in the area or anything density that make you know that this is probably going to be a pretty safe place to build, or this is going to be a, an area that should be successful for self-storage?
0: Yeah, as it relates to self-storage specifically, one of the first things we look at are supply ratios. Uh, Nationally, there's about eight square feet of storage per capita. So historically, if a market's been well over eight square feet per capita, it's been kind of oversupplied and under it's undersupplied and eight's kind of the median. Um, That's not a a kind of a universal metric that we live and die by. Some markets that might have 12 square feet per capita, which is a lot higher than the national average, um, all those facilities are full because the rents are so low. So what that means is if there's more supply and rents are low, more consumers can afford to store. Uh, So we also look at rents. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. If it's cheaper, more people, right. If it's more expensive, fewer, fewer consumers can store. Um, We also look at rents in the market. That's a, that's a big driver. And we look at rents relative to the in-place rents on an existing deal that we're buying. So we like to see rents, uh, you know, below market compared to competitors. Maybe the owner is not good at revenue management, they're not good at bringing customers up to market rates. Um, so really rents and supply ratios. And um, we also analyze the risk of new supply and kind of subjectively or objectively, what are the what are the chances that someone's going to build a facility nearby uh, during our hold period? And we obviously can't completely protect against that. But um, if we're buying a deal well below replacement costs, we know that it's going to be tough for someone to build um, at an attractive cost basis address. Um, And beyond those different specific self-storage parameters, we look at just good real estate nuts and bolts. We want to see housing density. We want to see rooftops. We don't like buying in um, overly rural locations. Um, And of course, we want to see population growth, job growth, uh, good wages. So a lot of the standard real estate funnels apply to storage as much as they they do to multifamily or or single family.
1: Yeah. And I would think, I mean, what makes I'm thinking about land prices when you're building a new type of structure. What makes self-storage a better investment or a better, you know, financial return than building some sort of multifamily dwelling or an apartment building or something like that?
0: Yeah, it's um, it kind of depends on how you look at it. Uh, a number a number of sites out there um, might have um, a zoning issue where multifamily is not allowed, but uh, self-storage might be, and kind of vice versa. We typically, when we're looking at a new development site, we're looking for sites with multifamily construction either nearby or in the pipeline nearby. And we're looking for sites that are really tough to entitle. Um, One of the benefits of storage as opposed to multifamily is it's much less operationally intensive. Um, We're not dealing, I'm going to sound like a, a dirty capitalist here, but we're not dealing with fair housing laws. Um, We're not dealing with repairs and maintenance on uh, places that someone lives just places where someone stores and we're renting out steel boxes without uh, without kitchens or toilets so inherently the repairs and maintenance are uh, much lower than multifamily and the risk of uh, default on a customer um, is to a degree lower because number one they're paying a lot less full dollar rent, and uh, number two you don't have to go through a full eviction if they decide to not pay their rent.
1: Right.
0: So the operation is a, you're little all bit, done. <laughs> a little bit simpler. Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially in this environment, uh, depending on the market that you're in, it's, um, if a if a tenant rolls over on you on their rent, it could be a while before you can get a replacement uh, by the time you go through the court system. So that's kind of one of the advantages too. Um, but uh, multifamily is a great asset class too. I think, uh, I think affordable housing, um, not affordable housing, but attainable rental housing. It's going to be in strong demand indefinitely, just given that I think our, our country is continuing to shift from a nation of homeowners to a nation of renters. Um, I mean, the home price appreciation that we've seen is obviously untenable and now it's moderating. Yeah. Um, interest rates spiking, it's tougher to buy than ever. So people are going to rent apartments, which is a, a good reason to be in that asset class and apartments are smaller than houses. So you might infer it also might make sense to be in self-storage as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just as a nice dovetail because Even though you might think it's not going to, you know, in, in like three months of renting, I could go buy this couch brand new again, you know, people don't necessarily think that way. They have attachment to things. And
0: I mean, intelligent people don't think that way. It's kind of amazing. Um, Many of our customers will, will think they're going to store with us for, you know, three or four months and 18 months they are still paying rent and they've already, they've already had a rent increase. Um, It kind of becomes out of sight, out of mind. It just hits their credit card every month. They don't want to deal with their stuff yeah don't be we where to put it and if they want to find another storage unit that maybe is cheaper down the road they have to get a friend in a moving truck uh, going on, on a Saturday do a bunch of work um, so it's a it's a stickier customer base than uh, than you might assume people people stay around a lot longer than they expect to
1: right yeah that makes sense because once like you say once it's there you're never you're never going to move it you have to go in and throw it away or deal with it in some fashion and People are, I think, not that excited about <laughs> doing that kind of work.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we have a, so I'm in my office right now, obviously we own an office building in Denver and we converted the main floor to self-storage. Uh, it's pretty small, but it kind of offsets our overhead. And I have a storage unit down there and I pay our company kind of paying myself, but I got partners. I pay, I pay ourselves 110 bucks a month. And in that storage unit, I keep um, family heirloom stuff that I don't want in my house, but I don't want to get rid of. And I keep my seasonal gear like skis. I have a ton of skis, uh, mountain bikes, camping gear, and I will indefinitely pay that rent um, for I don't know how long. It's it's right. already been a year and a half or two, and I'll keep going. <laughs> and I probably could have bought some new stuff um, <laughs> rather than than pay that rent for that long. But but you could. Goes.
1: But if you don't want those heirlooms in your home, like you say, you might even if that's all that was in there.
0: That's right. Yeah. I can't yeah, throw, right. I can't throw away old,
1: grandma's old, you know, whatever, but I certainly don't want it in my house.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they come from an old Nebraska farmhouse and uh they don't they don't quite match the furniture that my wife has spec for our house. So in the storage <laughs> unit, they stay.
1: Yeah, they look great there. <laughs> they do. They do. So what kind of ROI can investors expect from a fund like this?
0: Yeah. Um we look at our return metrics through kind of two different lenses. We, um, we have an IRR target, which is internal rate of return. And that's basically a time weighted calculation based on a series of cash flows. So IRR accounts for time. And the second metric that we target is a multiple. And a multiple is simply how much equity um, do you put into the fund? And then how much profit can you expect to realize over the life of the fund is your is a percentage of your original invested capital? So, if somebody puts in 100K and gets back 200, that's a two multiple. They put in yeah. 100, get back 250, that's 2.5. So, we, we target a 14 to 16% IRR over wow. the life of our fund. Um, and that equates to be about a 2 to 2.25 multiple on invested capital. And we, we try to drive our distributions um, kind of 50 50 from operational cash flow to some kind of gain on sale when it comes time to, to monetize the portfolio. Um, but every time we buy a deal, when we're whether we're building something or, or buying a value-add acquisition, our, our target is always cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, we love cash flow. We don't like buying, making better, and selling too often and too quickly. Um, it's taken a long time to learn this, but uh, I think the, the key to wealth creation in real estate is, is building an asset base that's sustainable and durable mm-hmm. and holding that for an appropriately really longer period of time versus buying, making better, and then selling and doing it over and over again.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that might be a function. I don't think, I don't know how old you are, and I'm not going to guess, but I think it's a function of going through multiple market cycles. I actually was invited to speak at a college, and I was on a panel with all people who are younger than me. I think probably I was the only one over 30. And so I've lived through, I'm going to, I'm 59, right? I've lived through multiple market cycles, and I've seen what happens. And I'm listening to all their strategies, and I'm like, all these strategies require that the market is always going forward that it's always prices are always going up right you get into this situation and it just can't it's not sustainable unless you're constantly getting more value and and it just doesn't work that way and I thought well so I said to one of the I don't want to call them kids I said to one of the young people what happens if prices don't appreciate and even though you've put money into it and fixed it up what happens if it doesn't appreciate and they just looked at me like you know that's ridiculous like and it you know hey for the last 10 12 years right prices have been steadily creeping up so I can understand their mindset but it's not real life
0: <laughs> yeah uh values will always go up until they stop right? <laughs> exactly. yes yeah so i to answer your question and of course I don't mind I just hit 40 back in a and um that's I started right. investing in my early 20s uh, yeah. which is right before the financial crisis. Um, so I was, uh, I'm still dumb, but I was much younger and dumber back then. And, uh, it hurt. Um, I went through a lot of pain and I would do it again because I learned so much, but um, I think about those days constantly and how we can be well positioned within our portfolio when the downturn comes, which it is starting by the way, it's not gonna right. start. It's, it's already beginning. Yeah. Um, how can we position ourselves to kind of survive that and thrive through it? Um, I think the answer really is cash flow. Um, yeah, if your absolutely. property is producing cash flow and you've got term on your debt, um, it doesn't matter what it's worth to a degree because you're you're getting recurring revenue streams, you don't have to refinance. Um, and you can kind of ride that cycle out. Exactly.
1: So, it doesn't matter what it's worth unless you have to sell it, right? So if you put no. yourself into a situation where you don't have to sell it, it's okay, right? It's not costing yeah. you anything to hold this money. I'm actually making money. So I'm just gonna ride this wave, like you yep, said. There-
0: there is a reckoning coming in the real estate space. Uh, it's already started. Um, talk to people who say, oh, I've been investing for 10 years. Look at my returns. Um, what I want to say, which I don't, is you couldn't have lost. I mean, the, it's been such a bull run. Um, right. Let's say uh, let's say, uh, an operator is a fix and flipper. They do their, full, they, their first multifamily syndication. They build apartments. They raise some capital. Um, they might've busted through their hard costs, you know, blown their budget. They might've taken a lot longer, um, to build the building they originally thought they would, yeah. but they were saved by cap rate compression and rising rents. So okay. when they sold it, it was a home run. Yeah. Um, it wasn't and they thought it was
1: something they did.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and truly like our, our successes too, they haven't really been because of something we did. It's because we timed the market, right. Um, and sometimes you know, some of our home runs, uh, you know, the the returns have been something we never could have dreamt of modeling. And there's an execution component to it. You have to go out and execute and manage your property the right way and construction, Price. all those Price, things. Yeah. But so much of this game is just kind of luck on timing the market. But if you're not trading in and out of deals, you don't have to time the market, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, Exactly.
1: So what happens, though, if somebody gets into a situation where they're in one of your funds and then they say, oh, gosh, you know, I, something's happened, a life event, whatever I need to get my money out. They, do they need to wait until you sell that asset?
0: Yeah, there, there's a few um, main disadvantages to investing in generally in a, in a private real estate syndication or fund. Um, I think the primary disadvantage is investors generally have a lack of liquidity. Um, so it's not like you put hundred grand in and, uh, you buy Amazon stock and you can sell it the next day and, you know, get a wire to your Schwab account. Right. Uh, it's very different. So we have, we have a mechanism in place that, um, allows for if somebody wants to get out, they can sell their shares to other investors in the fund. Um, valuing those shares at that given point in time, any given point in time, could be challenging. Yeah. And uh, even though we have that, no one's asked to do it. And we certainly don't tell people that they should rely on that as a source of liquidity. Right. So for better or for worse, when people partner with us, uh, they're stuck with us for a while, um, but they're stuck getting cash flow and depreciation and uh, eventually upside. Right. So it's kind of a longer term commitment and you're, you're strapped in for the long haul. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, I think it still works.
1: So how would this differ from say being involved in a REIT?
0: Yeah. Um, one of the big differences, uh, I mean, I could go on and on for REITs, uh, about <laughs> REITs for a while.
1: Well, I know a lot of REITs are in self-storage. That's.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll start by saying, uh, the REITs are, um, they're, they're big gorillas. They have tons of properties. They have a massive asset base. And we used to use early in our storage careers. We used to use a number of the REITs to manage our properties. And we were kind of dazzled with their uh, revenue management algorithms, their branding, their marketing. And after the honeymoon was over, we realized over time that we our interests were not aligned. Um, their marketing expense loads are, are fairly bloated. Um, they're not paying attention to revenue management like an owner does. And there's a lot of ancillary revenue streams and self-storage, specifically tenant insurance. It's kind of like car rental insurance. The margin on that's massive if you ever get car rental insurance. So they try to sell it to you. Um, they keep that revenue stream. And- It's um, not part of the REIT. Yeah. And that's a big a big piece of the REIT's bottom lines uh, is tenant insurance revenue. Um, right. You can look at their stock reports and, and see it. Um, but after we kind of realized that- uh, you know, we have a misalignment of interest, we formed our own management platform, and we started self-managing. Um, and we're not necessarily smarter than the REITs, but we care a lot more, and we watch our numbers a lot more carefully, and uh, I think our revenue streams reflect that. Um, but to answer your, your original question, you know, why go private versus a public REIT? Um, one, of the, one of the main disadvantages of buying into a REIT. Um, is you're not enjoying the tax benefits along the way of the property's asset base. Right. So you're not getting a K-1 with depreciation that you could use to offset your other passive gains in a given tax year. Um, but the main advantage of buying into a REIT stock is something we touched on earlier, which is liquidity, right? If you buy uh, public storage stock, you can sell it you know, on the stock exchange and get your money back right away. Right. Um, and generally, the the REIT returns have been um, lighter than the private space as well. But um, okay. REITs are a good way to uh, participate in the asset class. And it's not a huge commitment. You can get your money back pretty easily when you sell the stock. Um, but REIT stocks this year have uh, have gone down, and in some cases, up to 30% uh, since January in the self-storage Out. space. Um and our portfolio has not gone down by 30% since January. So there's a lot more ebbs and flows uh, kind of on the valuation. Um, but uh, yeah, it kind of depends on what you're after. Uh, advantages and disadvantages to both.
1: And so what could someone expect if they decided that they wanted to invest with you? How would it work? You know, what's the, I don't know. Yeah, so we, we have process, a pretty, I guess I would say.
0: <laughs> yeah, typically, uh Most funds and syndications have a couple of common elements, and uh, one of those is something called a preferred return or PREF, if you want to sound cool. Um, A a PREF is simply designed to get investors um, a minimum per annum return before anything else happens. Uh, In the case of our funds, it's 8%. Um, After 8% is paid current every distribution thereafter above 8% goes to return investor capital accounts. So said otherwise, investors get all of the distributions the fund makes until PREF is current and until a return of capital. And then after that, uh, everything is split between 70-30 to 80-20 in their favor, uh, depending on how much they invest. Um, so that's our waterfall. And as far as the process goes, it's pretty simple. Uh, we have an online portal people can use to... Um, make a capital commitment, as well as complete their subscription documents. Uh, once they go through that process, we countersign, we coordinate funding. And once they fund uh, their investment, their preferred return begins to accumulate and they're buying shares into our fund vehicle. Um, and as the, regardless of when they come in, whether it's today or next year, depending on when we, uh, when we close the fund, um, they're participating in the entirety of the fund's asset base. On all the deals that we've bought since um, leading up to when they funded, and all the deals we will buy after until the fund closes. So one of the main advantages, whether it's self-storage, multifamily, whatever, uh, of a fund, is generally the geographic and cash flow diversification that a multi-property asset base offers versus investing in one deal. Mm-hmm. And syndications and funds, as I mentioned earlier, but inevitable, inevitably, say it's a 20-property portfolio in a given fund. Um, in a given quarter, maybe two or three deals are performing behind forecast. Maybe there was a repair and maintenance issue or higher number of move outs than we expected, but those are balanced out and even shored up, uh, by the other call it 17 deals that are, uh, performing on or ahead of forecast. So funds are a little more diverse. It's almost like a, whatever the asset class is, it's almost a mutual fund, uh, of that asset class, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So, do people have to be accredited investors?
0: Yeah, in the case of our funds, they do. We're a we're a five hundred six C designation, um, which means that we can generally solicit. So, if we wanted to, we probably won't do this. We could put up a billboard next to the highway saying "Invest with our fund." Yeah. Um, but uh, in exchange for that ability to kind of go out and market and advertise. You can only accept accredited investors and you also have to verify their accreditation with some kind of third-party validation, either a CPA letter or there's some websites out there you can go to that let you kind of upload your financials and make sure you're accredited. But um, yeah, accredited only. And for those of us listening, you don't know what that is. Um, you either have to make $200,000 a year if you're single or $300,000 a year if you're married, or a million dollars in net worth outside your primary residence, so any one of those thresholds by themselves uh, work for accreditation. Cool, and what so if it's somebody wants to, but not huge, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a barrier, but
1: yeah, but you much. don't want people who are like you know hanging out and you know who can't really afford to put that money away for a while. I mean, it's
0: yeah, we, we don't want somebody with uh hundred thousand dollars to their name giving us 50. That's that's yeah, never exactly good. Uh, never good balance. Right, too much. And they'll pressure. be
1: calling you every day. What do you mean somebody moved out of that space? <laughs> I was right. over there and I saw two <laughs> right. moving no, trucks. No, this- out. What are we gonna do?
0: <laughs> yes, this is this is my last toe. What do you mean it's not going well? Yeah, Right,
1: exactly. Don't want that. So, how about people uh, if they? I don't know how many people are familiar with the idea that they can use money from their IRA to do this sort of an investment. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, we, have a, we have a lot of investors who um, invest in our syndications and our funds using self-directed IRAs, and there's a number of implications to think about using a self-directed IRA, but uh, we'll keep it high level. Um, One of the disadvantages of investing with an IRA uh, is you're not enjoying the depreciation during the whole period to offset your other passive gain sources uh, on a given tax year. Mm -hmm. Um, But the advantage of an IRA is when there's a reversion event, um, your taxable income on those capital gains is uh, either zero or much less. So you're not enjoying the tax benefits along the way. But when there's a liquidity event and some upside, you're saving a lot on taxes on the back end. So right. it just kind of depends on what your, what your strategy is. Um, and I, I kind of look at IRAs as to a degree, depending on your age, house money, like you can't touch it for a while. You can't get to it if you want to. Um, you might as well park it somewhere that's going to grow over time uh, within real estate. So we think that's a good, good option for folks who, who have those IRAs kind of sitting around that aren't doing anything.
1: Especially if you think about it, I don't know how many people, I mean, this isn't an IRA conversation, but like if you have a Roth IRA. Right, you you're just getting such great returns that you don't have to. That you're never right going to have to pay taxes on. Right, right, right? exactly. Just,
0: that, that's the idea. That's, yeah, that's the idea. Yep, Compared
1: yeah. You're like- you are
0: mis- appreciation, but a lot of our investors, um, depending on kind of the the avatar of a given investor, let let's say you're you're an attorney um, making good money, you own a house. Uh, you own some stocks. Um, even if we're giving that investor passive losses, they can't use those passive losses to offset their active income. So even right. though they're getting a big W-2 and making a lot of money every year, those losses aren't really doing much for them. Right. Uh, so sometimes it doesn't matter that someone's getting losses because they, they don't have anything else in their portfolio they can use to offset. Right. So it really just depends on your tax situation and what your uh, investment portfolio looks like. Yeah.
1: So Jacob, I I mean, I think we've kind of got into a little bit of you know helping people to understand how this could work and stuff. Are there questions that you wish I would be asking you right now that I'm not asking out of ignorance or just you know cluelessness?
0: (laughs) No, well, um, certainly not out of ignorance or foolishness. Of course, Um, I think if uh, if someone's out there considering um, and they've been thinking about pulling the trigger on getting into real estate at some point. Um, I think there's never a good time to invest and there's never a bad time to invest. Um, there's never a perfect deal. And I think the worst thing you can do is sit on the sidelines and just, um, you know, wait for the perfect opportunity because, frankly, that perfect opportunity will never come. Right. And even when there is a perfect opportunity, you won't realize it was perfect. You didn't know it till until it's too late. Until, right? a year, <laughs> it's until a year later, right? You're going to say, oh, I should have bought that deal. And who knows, like, like COVID, right? Should have bought every every house we possibly could in uh, June of 2020 and blew out of it, uh, Q1 of 2022, we'd be heroes. We didn't know. Um, We'd only known. So so yeah, you're you're not creating wealth and you're not learning anything by sitting on the sidelines. So um, I, I encourage you to take action for sure. Um, And whether that's buying your own rental property or investing in a fund or syndication, um, I think putting money to work is important because your greatest asset is time. And if you're not taking advantage of that time to let that money grow, uh, you're losing out. Um, If you do invest in a private syndication or fund, um, I encourage you to get to know the sponsor really well. Um, make sure what they're telling you is true, track record, uh, performance history. I think transparency is very critical. If a sponsor won't show you what you want to see when you ask for it, that's probably an early sign. Maybe you shouldn't work with them. Um, And I I think uh, another really important component, which is kind of tougher to do to a degree, um, but understanding whether that sponsors um, strategy and their return targets are driven by reasonable and achievable assumptions, so not looking at something where if everything goes perfectly, right, uh, we're going to make a fifteen percent IRR. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to you want to understand the different levers that can be pulled in a model, um, just high level assumptions that can be made that can materially change the return target of a given deal. And we mm-hmm. see a lot of offerings out there that. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll show a, a refinance in year two, returning 50% of investor capital. Then they'll show a really low cap rate exit on year three. And lo and behold, the returns are awesome. Well, especially in this environment, how can you predict what your cap rate's going to be down the road? Right. And then also, how can you predict when you can refinance and how much, right? Exactly. Um, I never would have predicted a year ago that interest rates would have doubled. Never would have thought that hadn't happened, um, but it did. So, predictions are generally wrong, mine included.
1: I actually heard somebody say the other day something about interest rates have never been that high or something. And I was like, when I bought my house, my first house, interest rates were 13.5%. And it was so good because they had been 18. And everyone was like, oh, they're down to 13%. Great. And you know, I hear people now saying, oh, you know, what do you mean they're not 4% anymore, it's not 4% get you a know, grip, we, you know.
0: We, we all have such short memories. Um, yeah. this, this shock over interest rates, I mean, relative to where it was a year ago, it's, you know, it's been a big right. increase. Um, but relative to the history of interest rates, um, you know, 6 or 7% is still relatively attractive. That's still okay. relatively cheap money. Um, it's going to impact deal valuations. It's going to impact cash flows, of course, and affordability right. on single family homes. But um, yeah, you're right. It's not 18% like it was <laughs> you know, back in the day. Um, what uh, what they, interest rates have certainly been higher than they are, but I'm what might be true, which I'll have to check on, is I'm not sure if interest rates has, have ever risen as quickly as they have. Um I in the definitely quarters. I mean, it's, it's been a, a vertical trajectory and yeah. we're recording this uh on November 10th, but, um, you know, the inflation numbers came out and they weren't as bad as everybody thought. And, you know, the markets react irrationally, but the Dow's up a thousand points and the 10 year treasuries dropped like 35 basis points, which is a massive drop. Um, I'm sure some other news will come out on, you know, Tuesday and it's gonna go the other direction. Um, but yeah, it's been a it's been a big run up in the cost of capital. And I think it's gonna be a real impact uh, specifically on the real estate market. Um, yeah. But that's
1: why, I mean, as you're talking about, uh, you know, self-storage, it sounds like it almost could be the opposite, you know, like a a very complementary market because as there are more, you know, as people are having trouble maybe paying their rent or buying homes, on the other side, they're going to need to have self-storage. They're going to need to have more, you know, places to put things while they're temporarily in an apartment waiting for interest rates to go down, for example, downsizing, right-sizing, moving to different places where they just can't maybe afford to buy what they thought they were going to be able to afford to buy right
0: now. Yeah, well, we'll see how the demand kind of sustains as things soften up. Um, yeah. But uh, in an inflationary environment, because our leases are month to month, uh, as painful as inflation is, it actually is a benefit because you can more aggressively raise rates over time yeah. um, because everything else is going up, right? Their gas is going up, their rent, uh, their food. So they're kind of used to bills going up as painful as it is. Right. Um, but there's an inflection point eventually. Uh, people just can't afford to pay anymore, right? And I think the country in a, in a lot of ways is kind of reaching that, um, You know, filling up your gas tank, your utility bill, uh, trying to buy a used car, right? Prices have dropped a little bit in used cars, but those are just through the roof. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm hopeful there's going to be a cleansing soon and a moderation to kind of get us back to normal.
1: Yeah. I know it does seem like people have been kind of beat up lately between you know COVID and now gas prices and now inflation and interest rates and it's like, what next? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's one thing after another. I mean, as terrifying as COVID was um, and the, the impact it had on the economy, I think with a lot of government intervention with shutdowns, um, I think the situation is um, perhaps more financially meaningful and uh, terrifying. Um, like we're gonna see a, a, a massive drop in real estate values if these interest rates continue. Yeah. Um, because commercial real estate and residential to degree, trades on a cap rate basis, which is a multiple of the income stream it produces. And there's an inverse relationship between values and cap rates. The lower the cap rate, the higher the value. Yeah. Um, historically, uh, you know, an infill storage facility that stabilized or an infill multifamily building that's class A was trading in a three or 4% cap rate. Well, you cannot buy a deal a stabilized three or four cap and finance at a seven, right? The exactly. math doesn't work anymore. <laughs> so one of two things have to happen: either interest rates have to drop, which they're not going to anytime soon; they'll, they'll normalize eventually, but right. not soon. Or values have to drop. So we're we're going to see some uh, some asset declines. I think here in the coming quarters, we already are starting to see it, but uh, it's it's going to become obvious here, I think, very soon. So be careful in the streets.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's panic in the streets.
0: <laughs> That's right. There's not blood in the streets yet, but uh, there there might be pretty soon.
1: Yeah. Jacob, thank you so much for being with us today and, and enlightening us about self-storage. I don't think I've talked to anybody about self-storage before, but you know, now that we're talking about it and thinking about it, it's like in many, many ways, it makes sense. It seems like a really good investment. And I think I'd rather be in a private sort of situation rather than a REIT. You know, I have some experience with REITs and I didn't did not love that experience. Like you say, a lot of overpromising and under-delivering and, you know, Certainly. whatever. But. Well, <laughs> so it is, can-
0: uh, as boring as self-storage is, um, that's not necessarily a bad thing to be, right? That's it,
1: exactly. So how can people reach out to you if they want to talk more about possibly getting involved in investing with you?
0: Yeah, or just talk shop about real estate in general. If you have sure. a deal you want to look at, always happy to talk. Um, they can email me. Uh, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. They can go to our website, vanwestpartners.com, or they can hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice.
1: Great. Excellent. And I'll put all those no- all those links in the show notes for everybody so you don't have to try to write them down if you're driving. And think now, listeners, think about who you know, who's in a situation where they just in some kind of dead-end investment, they've got money under the mattress and they just don't, you know, they're just not getting the kinds of returns that they could be getting and maybe put them in touch with Jacob, maybe send them this link to this episode and, you know, change their potential future, financial future and have a wonderful week. Jacob, thanks so much for being with us.
0: Thank you, Christine. We appreciate it.